Hi, this is Women Who Travel, a podcast from Condé Nast Traveller. I'm Lale Arikoglu, and with me, as always, is my co-host Meredith Carey. Hello! After months spent isolating ourselves during stay-at-home orders, we've decided to spend this episode chatting with someone who's, well, somewhat of an expert on solitude. Sarah Uten is a British athlete and adventurer who at just 24 became the first woman and youngest person ever to row solo across the Indian Ocean. She then spent four years rowing, cycling and kayaking across the Northern Hemisphere and back, a journey which is now captured in the film Home. Thanks for joining us, Sarah. Thanks for having me. It's good to be here. So you didn't just decide on a whim to spend four years biking and kayaking and rowing around the world. What was the path that led you there? So that journey came very much from the Indian Ocean journey. And that Indian Ocean journey came from being 20 years old at university, hearing about ocean rowing and not having a plan for after university at that stage. And so I was totally captivated by this idea of having a big adventure uh, in a little boat across a big ocean. And I thought that I'd go as part of a team because it did not occur to me that I could do a big solo voyage like that. Like, who would you speak to? And I started making sort of plans and preparations going from trying to find out everything I could about about how to row an ocean and, and sort of how I'd get there, how I'd find a team. And it was about five or six months into that process when my dad died really suddenly and unexpectedly. Very swiftly, I just knew that, A, I still wanted to row across the ocean, but now it was going to be more than just having this big adventure. It was actually a way for me to chart my way through grief and to do something positive and tangible with you know, the, the shock and devastation of, of my dad's death. And so it took me three years to get to the point of being out in Australia with a six metre boat, ready to row. I'd graduated from university and then spent the rest of the time kind of working and planning and figuring it all out and trying to raise funds, beg, steal, borrow, get the project together. And those four months rowing from Australia to Mauritius, I think, were some of the most formative of my life, really. I'm, I'm looking, as I speak, I'm looking over the top of my laptop to um, the big world map and looking at that route across. And whilst I was out there, I obviously had a lot of time to think about what I would do next. And it seemed to me that there was a bit of a dichotomy um, in as much as I had a place at teacher training college to go and do that when I got back. But there was this other kind of idea forming about a journey that could take me across oceans and across continents. And when I got home, it was that that kind of won in my mind. I had this sense of, well, if I don't do this now, I'm probably never going to do it because stuff happens. And at that point, I had no responsibility and those things. So I, I said, this is what I want to do. And it, it was born out of loving being out on the ocean and, and being inspired by that life out there, kind of going, wow, you can live for months at a time in true wilderness like that, and kind of wanting to see the world and, and meet people. And I realise now through kind of having made the film and, and really reflecting on, I suppose, how, I, how I've how i lived my life for, for a long time, um, 
there was an element of of kind of always being on the move, I guess, so that I didn't have to face up to tricky things as well. So that's how it came to be. You mentioned that for at least the beginning, when you were kind of envisioning that first adventure, that it was going to, you assumed you'd be part of a group. When did doing it solo become not only like a possibility to you, but a priority? And why did you decide to keep traveling that way? So it was, as I say, sort of just a few months into planning a row. So I didn't have a team. I was just kind of putting out feelers and and things when my dad died. And because I knew very quickly that I wanted that row now to be my way of getting through grief, it didn't make sense to me that such a personal mission would involve other people on the water unless they knew my dad. Um, And well, (laughs) none of my family wanted to come and I probably wouldn't have wanted them to come either, to be honest. (laughs) Um, So it it was this deeply, deeply personal mission. And I actually found that I'm I'm really good at being solo. I certainly was at that age and I enjoyed sort of the, the the challenge of solitude. I enjoyed what it offered me in terms of space and really a chance to really know myself and, and figure out, okay, this is what I'm gonna do in this situation, rather than when you're with a group, for better and for worse, you are influenced by other people. And so I've, I've, I really enjoyed, for the most part, the, the sort of the spaciousness of solitude and um, coming off the back of that journey and, and thinking of the London to London via the world journey, you know, the one that would ultimately take four and a half years. It also felt like that was right to do that as a solo voyage. I mean, it takes an enormous, an enormous effort to pull something like that off you know, logistically, financially, the commitment, emotionally. And and it required that of a lot of people because I did have a support team that were mostly at home. I kayaked with a brilliant woman, Justine Kagenvan, for the kayaking legs. And occasionally a safety guy would come out at the start and the end of the rows to help with sort of logistics and safety. But um, it, it felt to me like being solo whilst out on the road at least and and out on the ocean you know for the bulk of the journeying was important because it was my dream it was my idea I think to start off you know with multiple people on such a big journey when you're going to be in each other's pockets the whole time there's just lots of stories of teams like that going wrong and and also there's something quite important I think about um being solo I find that I'm sort of forced to meet people and go in search of others. And I, I just really enjoy the, the sort of what comes from what comes from solitude as well, um, when I'm totally alone out there. I mean, as it happened, the evolution of the journey and and I guess my I'd almost call it a coming of age, which sounds a bit cliche, but it did kind of parallel this yearning to share my journeys my life with somebody else and it so happened it did turn into a love story because I did meet my now wife Lucy during the journey in a period when I was sort of forced back home due to things not going quite to plan on the Pacific Ocean and that 
was a hurricane, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, I tend no, to talk about it in quite... Not quite plan. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's a defense mechanism. Yeah, I tend to I'm talk sure. about these things in quite... Um, yeah, quite low key terms. But you're right. Uh, there was a, it was a well typhoon in that part of the world heading my way, and by the time it reached me, it was a, a tropical storm. But that's still a really big, serious situation. And I suppose, well, I mean, in good faith, but in my naivety as well at that age, I decided that I was going to remain with the boat rather than take a preemptive pickup. And so after three horrendous, horrendous days of being battered by this huge storm, the boat wasn't in a fit state for me to be able to repair and and carry on. So I was picked up by the Japan Coast Guard and taken back to shore. And I came home and faced another storm, which... I'd use the word isolation rather than solitude in that respect. Um, I mean, the the trauma of being in that little boat by myself in those conditions just sort of splurged out everywhere. And for me, there was something deeply personal about that because well, nobody else had been there. It was just me and the boat. And there was that sort of double grief of having had to leave my boat at sea as well. And being a soloist my sort of boat spikes and so on, they they become a part of me. They're, they're sort of teammates. So it felt pretty devastating to have left him behind. And then it was, yeah, during that period at home, I was at home for about nine months, I think, before heading out again. We'd managed to get together another boat. Insurance, amazingly, had paid out. But I'd met, yeah, I met Lucy in that time. And we'd fallen in love. And I thought, ah, oh, man, the kind of the way of the universe, right? (laughs) I've just fallen in love with the woman that I want to spend the rest of my life with and I'm now going away for another year and a half. That's not right. But when you parted ways and you went off on that year and a half leg, did you go into it knowing that the two of you were going to try and make a go of it you know how does long distance work when you're in a kayak it's interesting we both said to each other before going away like if you meet someone else it's fine brackets don't you dare meet anyone else because you're the (laughs) one that I want (laughs) and yeah we we had this intention that we're going to stay together It, it felt like that even at that early stage with having only known each other a a few months before leaving I think our separation you know our our separation by the world was actually and and still is sort of a huge strength it's it's almost a foundation of our relationship in that we know that we have survived being apart and and being in separately very stressful very different situations and I think the the sort of the communication skills that grew from us being apart and, and speaking only on a satellite phone, where there's often a delay, sometimes it's a dodgy line, sometimes you can't quite hear what's being said properly. It just really made us learn to listen to each other and so value our times together. Oh, no, that's the thing. I had to go back home after the Pacific as well. So the Pacific round two didn't go quite as we planned. It turned out even better. Originally, I was supposed to land in Canada 
Vancouver Island, but once again, the weather was rubbish and I wasn't making enough progress. So we decided I was going to row north to the Aleutian Islands, which would then mean this extra kind of part of the journey was sort of slotted in. Again, that's pretty, that's a bit of an understatement. It's a 1500 mile remote, rugged stretch of kayaking that needed to be slotted into the journey. So I came home at that stage again, and I was really poorly for um, quite a few months. I, I had pneumonia and then I just became allergic to everything. I had, um, yeah, real, real issues there. Uh, so at home again with Lucy and then back out. And it was, I suppose, six months later after I'd done the kayaking with Justine, I'm cycling over the Rockies and it's getting into wintertime. And I just realised that I was really, really lovesick. I had become one of those adventure stories that was now pining about my love, my love at home. And I almost, I almost sort of, called it a day and, and went home, which would have just bemused my 24-year-old self that that had happened. And so Lucy actually came out and joined me for two months on the bike, cycling across Canada and the States in the middle of winter. Um, not at all romantic, but it was brilliant. So I'm so glad and grateful that we met when we did. And I, I sort of wonder, would I have finished the journey without Lucy in my life because actually being a sort of a partnership being in love like that just gave me such huge strength and and motivation and reason to come home safely so yeah here's to love (laughs) yeah there's ever a lesson (laughs) I feel like I can only imagine that the periods of being isolated then going back and then going back out into the like adventure world and then coming back to the air quotes real world really influenced messed with whatever verb you want to use your perception of time um and I feel like one thing that a lot of people myself included and I know for Lale too keep talking about during this specific period of time is that their concept of how time moves over the last four months now has totally changed. How did your relationship with time evolve throughout, you know, all of these different journeys? Yeah, I think that's that's definitely true for for my journeys was that time elongated, it disappeared at times. Happily there were days that would sort of float by and I wouldn't know necessarily what day it was. I certainly didn't know what day of the week it was generally. Um, when I was out on the ocean by myself, it was more punctuated by little lines on the uh, on the cabin wall that I was doing with my little sort of crossbars to count how many days I'd been at sea. But that makes me chuckle too, because on the Pacific in 2013, I was convinced I'd been at sea for 153 days, whereas I got to shore and apparently I'd only been there 150. So I don't know where I'd added these extra days in. Um, but it, it's, yeah, it's interesting how time did move or stood still. I mean, the storm on the Pacific, the longest three days of my life where moments felt like forever. And then that sort of happy state at times that that felt timeless um, when things were good and and there was flow where it it sort of felt like forever, but it happened very quickly Um, versus those days perhaps when I was having a hard time to just stay on the bike and get the miles in or, or stay awake or, or to sit on the 
the seat of the of the rowboat and and put the hours in. Yeah, it's curious, and and it's interesting to me now to consider that as well, and to consider the idea of spending months away on a bike. I mean, ah, oh, I'd love to do that right now. <laughs> um, whereas at times, you know, I was I was waiting to get to the next bid, ready for that bit, always focusing on going, 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 um, because of sort of pressure of weather and deadlines and and so on. So, I think that sense of timelessness certainly in my experience I know it's not the same for everyone at all but that's something I really relish these days in this time for me certainly of less structure for the most part um, as, as most of my work's been cancelled um, and when I was out on the on the journey as well those moments of flow where it felt timeless were just such a gift such a gift of kind of daydreaming and wandering and, and real presence as well. How do you think that sense of timelessness and the kind of like malleableness of that time affected the way that you've like remembered that journey and like your memories of it? Hmm. Like, do you have very intense memories followed by almost like blankness or is everything vivid as a result of it? No, there is a real, there's a real sort of spectrum in what I remember and how I remember and when I remember as well. I'm currently recording my book about the journey, Dare to Do. I'm recording it for the local talking newspaper in sort of serialised stages. And that's really wonderful to be sort of bringing back bits of the journey that perhaps I'd forgotten, um, others that I remembered, but I'd perhaps forgotten details. And I, I just, again, it feels to me such a gift to have, well, to have made the journey and survived it and come home safely but to have those memories and to really feel them viscerally as well, to be able to sense back into what it tasted like, what it felt like, what I was looking at, the colours, the feeling in my muscles even at certain points um, that feels so, yeah, so rich and, and so special. And, and equally, I, I know that that's probably with rose-tinted spectacles a lot of the time too. You know, I can forget the trickier bits so reading the book I'm like oh yeah I did have some really rubbish days just here <laughs> <laughs> looks like that was a bit tough for a while you mentioned like being able to feel that like phantom feeling in your muscles and I would say during this lockdown period a lot of people Lala and myself included again uh have realized the power of their own bodies by biking or walking mm. as a mean of transports which they might not have done before Lala and I both have recently acquired bikes why have you committed to this self-powered travel for all of these journeys that you've made the most adventurous journeys that you've made thus far Oh, I just love human-powered travel. I love being the engine behind where I want to go. The way that, certainly in all the journeys I've made, being self-powered means that you're outside, you're open to the elements, which can be really flipping tough at times. <laughs> uh, don't get me wrong, but you feel, you feel the journey, you feel the landscape, the seascape in such a different way compared to being plonked inside a car and I love how sort of tracing a line across a map you can say I did that that was my leg power my willpower that made that happen the sort of self-powered travel 
takes an immense amount of physical strength. But it also, I imagine, also takes a lot of mental strength, um, especially in moments when perhaps you feel like your body can't do any more. How did you kind of push through those moments? Unfortunately, I was not the kindest driver of my body. And it's only really been in this last um, couple of years that I've come to understand the damage that I did to my body through relentlessly pushing on for so many years. I mean, even before these journeys, the way that I, I mean, so my dad had rheumatoid arthritis for all of my life up until he died very suddenly when I was 21. And I feel that from an early age, I had this strong sense of I've got one body and I've got to use it like as much as I can, because I don't know when I'm not going to have a healthy body. And I took that, unfortunately, to the extreme of kind of going, yeah, well, my body just like, I just, I can get through anything. It just carries on. It just picks up and carries on. And I, I, I chart my health through that London to London journey. And I really just got unhealthier and unhealthier. Um, I shouldn't have gone and kayaked the Aleutians after just having had pneumonia and, and anaphylaxis. Not sensible. Um, and I'm, I'm sort of finally realising now how that impacted my being and how brilliant rest is. I mean, what a what a sort of eureka moment to discover last year that you don't need to be exhausted to have a rest. Like who knew? And it's good to sleep and it's good to slow down. And that actually I'd been reading my body wrong all these years in thinking I've got one body, I need to smash it so that I get the most out of it. I now kind of go, oh, right. Yes. I need to honour my body and protect it. I mean, honestly, this was again, like a big revelation to me. Um, which seems so daft right now because it's the most obvious thing in the world. So in terms of how did I make my, how did I push my myself through even when things were tricky? Um, again, using a big understatement there, like even when I was really struggling, I would have all sorts of different mental tricks for, for getting myself to keep going. I mean, the first is break, the, it's almost like that that thing of break the elephant down into chunks. You've got to make it chunkable so that your mind can process it and your body will go, okay, I'll keep going for that next little bit. And so sometimes that was down to kind of minutes or moments um, of just sit on that bike and, and pedal the next bit. Uh, treats, that was a good way of getting myself to carry on. Uh, sometimes just stopping, having a little distraction, letting myself do something different, that was important. I love listening to music and I love reciting poetry. Poetry I, I often found was a real source of comfort, particularly when I was totally alone um, and scared. So I found that by reciting some of my favourite poems, there was comfort in the familiarity of words and a rhythm that was soothing and sort of reassuring that there's something embodied about rhythms. And also hearing another voice even if it was my own, you know, that was, that was important. You mentioned in addition to poetry that music often got you through it. <laughs> Are there particular songs that you hear now and you're like, <laughs> oh God, that takes me right back? <laughs> yes, there are, there are. So um, in China, I cycled across China in 2011 and for a good chunk of that journey, for five weeks out of eight, 
I was joined by, and this was not planned at all, I was joined by this young guy called Gao, Chinese guy, who kind of declared, he didn't even ask, he kind of declared that he was coming with me <laughs> on a bike. Um, and only half an hour before when I first met him, he told me that he wanted to make a bike journey but had no idea how it would happen. And then half an hour later, he sort of turned up at the roadside and said, well, I, I, I'm going to come with you. And we agreed we'd meet in two days time. And he'd bought this new bike and it turned out he'd never cycled more than a couple of miles before. So it was really this uh, just huge adventure together of total rookie, full of eagerness to please and no idea how to put up a tent and, and all of these things, but just with so much kind of gusto and energy and humor and um, joy. It was such a cool thing to to be alongside him. And anyway, in the, the sort of the Gobi Desert, 50 degrees centigrade in the middle of the day and, and stupid headwinds pushing us backwards and we ran out of water and our bikes broke day after day, uh, our anthem became we are the champions by Queen, except that we'd sing We Are the Losers at the top <laughs> of our voices into the middle of the night as we're cycling along. So whenever I hear that, I always think of Gao. I think that one thing that a lot of people, when they look at what travel will look like in the future, are concerned about how we'll interact with strangers, which mm. is like such a huge part, not just of travel, but particularly of solo travel, um, because the kindness and generosity of strangers is how a lot of us get through, even if we're not going on an adventure as wild as yours. What role did strangers overall play in your travels? The journey would have been so different and, and possibly wouldn't have happened without that kindness of, of folks on the road. It sort of represents to me just how the journey happened. I was like the front woman. I wasn't solo. I mean, I know I was alone on the ocean particularly, but it was such a massive team effort, even by people who didn't realize perhaps that they were part of my team or didn't realize the impact that um, handing me some watermelon on the road or helping me fix my bike or even just waving at me, you know, real simple stuff sometimes. I remember in Ukraine, a young teenager, a young teenage boy came up and gave me a, a bunch of wildflowers that he'd just picked, um, which I could never imagine happening at home. <laughs> but things like that, gestures of, of people taking me into their homes. The Japan Coast Guard coming out to pick me up off, off the Pacific Ocean. Um, folks driving hours because they'd heard about my journey to come and meet me part way and, and give me a, like, one lady drove 400 um, miles to come and give me a banana and I don't know whatever else it was, but she wanted to say hi after following my journey for so long. So uh, I was so touched and so humbled by people's kind of energy for the journey and spontaneous kindness to, to me and, and generosity on the way um, that it, it very much felt like those people came with me. They, they were a part of it. One of my favourite poems is Ulysses by Tennyson and the line, I am a part of all that I have met, much have I seen and known, men and cities and councils and governments, that kind of embodies to me all those people that became a part of, of the journey. So yeah, I, I don't think I'd have got home without, without that, or it would have been a very different story, to say the least. Talking about that, you make the world, because it is, but you make the world sound like so big and so electric 
and the world must have suddenly felt quite small when your journey ended and you came home or I imagine it would what was the experience of adjusting to sort of so-called normal life at the end of those four four and a half years Um, and what were some of the challenges of that I definitely felt really tiny on coming home. I mean, I felt tiny out in the world because you can't help but feel tiny amidst the universe. And particularly sort of, I don't know, out on the ocean when I was totally alone. The scale of dimension in every direction is just mind-blowing. And and so many times I was sort of shown just how frail we are as humans amidst natural forces but equally just I I saw so many examples of of such kind of tenacity and and human spirit and connectivity that made me feel a part of something bigger which was super special and so in coming home well that's an interesting one too because after the Indian Ocean in 2009 I remember approaching land I suddenly had this great fear of like, shit, I'm leaving this world that I've come to know. Everything on my boat, I know where it is. I know why it's there. It's all that I need. And now I'm going to be coming back to this whole different world that is home, but it feels like it's going to be so unfamiliar. And it did take quite a number of months to sort of settle in, um, which I hadn't anticipated and I hadn't thought about. And so just that very act of realising, okay, transitions are going to be tricky, uh, was useful for the London to London journey. And certainly the kind of stages of the journey added to that sense, going from perhaps solo on the bike for months and months to suddenly being with my team out in Russia and Japan very quickly was really discombobulating. And so coming to the end of the journey, I thought, ah, oh, yeah, we've, we've kind of got this covered. I, I know how to do transitions now. How naive I was. It ended up that the Atlantic ended differently to how we imagined. So I thought I had another month of the Atlantic to go. There was a hurricane. I got picked up before it happened. So 10 days later, I was at home looking at the end of the journey. And somebody said to me, you know, whatever you do next, Sarah, just take your time. And I thought, yes, that's such a good idea. I will take my time. But I didn't because (laughs) I agreed to the quickest book deal ever. Um, I got back having signed this book deal on the Atlantic and the publisher had said, um, yeah, we want the manuscript in three months time. And naively I said, sure, if you think I can do that, why not? That was before I realised how big a deal it is to come home. And it ended up that I had a breakdown at six months, just as I was finally handing the book manuscript in. Um, and, and I really actually feel that it's, it's probably taken as long to come home as it did for me to get around the world. And that is to say that there's been this long process of settling and processing. And I've had some really kind of grueling journeys with my physical health and with my mental health. I've had a few big crashes there as well. And I finally feel now, you know, we're coming up to five years since the finish um, this autumn. So in fact, right now we're at four and a half years. I I feel it's taken that equal amount of time to to kind of come home and, and settle. And yeah, it's been quite an isolated journey at times through those difficult parts Again, I think because a lot of the journey happened in solitude 
And so I find that processing difficult stuff that's been shared with other people has been much easier than difficult times that were just uh, sort of me on my own. But equally, processing those difficulties has been largely in part to kind of sharing that vulnerability and connecting with others, be it sort of just friends, family or um, therapists or, or donkeys or trees. I've spent a lot of time hugging trees and doing equine therapy. We've now got three of the cheekiest donkeys in the world as part of our little tribe. So yeah, it's been it's been a messy old process coming home. And in fact, that's going to be my next book. It's going to be Dare to Be. My book about the round the world journey is called Dare to Do. And I think just there's been such richness and lessons in that turbulence of coming home that um, as I learn these new ways of being, um, that's that's kind of where the focus goes next. How do you feel like everything leading up from the end of your journey to, I guess, March influenced how you approached being in lockdown? Yeah, it's really interesting. I, I had a, a such a difficult year last year for health reasons. I, I got concussion. I was freelancing as a tree climbing instructor and a big branch fell on my head. So I got knocked out, ha, knocked out of work for a couple of months. And then I had a, a huge tumour removed from my um, womb. I had this massive fibroid that had been basically my body's way, I believe, of screaming at me to slow down for a couple of years. And so last year was physically so challenging, but became spiritually such an important sort of learning. And financially, it was really difficult too, because we plowed all the money into the film and I was so proud of finishing it and all these things. But I had 2020 on my horizon. It's like, yes, this is the year of health. This is the year of the film launch. And I was due to be in um, Australia and New Zealand and I had all this work lined up and I was just on for such a killer year. And then March came <laughs> and I was just like, wow, 2021, you've got to be my year. Um, <laughs> And I think realizing that, yeah, I couldn't, I couldn't materially change any of the the sort of the outside stuff. But what I could do was choose how to make the most of that time that I'd been given. Um, I feel really blessed that I've been able to take the time to do creative projects and kind of DIY stuff at home and spend so much time with the donkeys so much time with Lucy like we've definitely affirmed that I don't want to be away all the time nowadays and doing lots of voluntary work locally too has been really special so I've I suppose in a way that I've always tried making the most of my time on this planet but now with that important kind of just the best knowledge in the world about how to rest and how to heal and how to how to really make the most of my time here. I feel that um, we've been actually so fortunate um, in our personal experience of, of lockdown. Yes, it's been difficult financially, but we still have a roof on our heads, over our heads and, and things. And so I'm glad to be emerging out the other side of it, uh, not not really too much worse for wear. And I appreciate that that's not the experience that a lot of people have had. So I know I'm super grateful for that too. Feels like a very 
nice note to wrap things up on. But before we do, um, and we ask this question to a lot of our guests, but who are some of those women adventurers out there that you love to follow and that we should be following right now? So uh, the, when you first started that question, there's a, a female adventurer who kind of comes to mind always immediately and was a huge inspiration for me when I was growing up, and that's Ella MacArthur, although now she's not adventuring in the same plane that she was back in the days when I first started uh, sort of to know about her. She's now in the field of sustainability and, and driving a transition towards the circular economy. Ah, oh, such sad news just recently of um, Paralympian um, and, and trans-ocean rower Angela Madsen uh, was found floating next to her boat out en route to Hawaii. She was solo rowing from California to Hawaii. So I'd have said hers were great journeys to follow and actually still her legacy is such that she's so worth checking out her kind of profile and stories online because her way of being in the world and making great things happen out of not great things and sort of her um, spirit of warriorship, I suppose, is, is something that's going to stay with us for a, a long time, definitely. I feel a little bit out of touch with what's happening in the adventure world at the moment, but one journey that I'm really enjoying following right now is watching Leah Ditton row from California to Hawaii solo. She's hoping to break the men's record, which I think is 55 days, something like that, the women's record is 99 days. So I really recommend seeing what Leah's up to out on the Pacific. Uh, Row Leah Row is her website. Perfect. Um, if people want to follow you, where can they find you on the internet and keep up with your book and movie and all the things that you're yeah. doing? Thank you. So Twitter is Sarah Uten and our movie is on Vimeo. Uh, Vimeo On Demand, so that's Sarah Uten Home. And our website for the film is sarahoutenhome.com. Instagram, Sarah underscore Uten underscore home. Ah, so many different places to be, isn't there? So <laughs> many. You can find me at oh hey there mayor on Instagram and Twitter. And you can find me at Lale Hannah on Instagram. Remember to follow Women Who Travel on Instagram and sign up for our newsletters. Links to that will also be in the show notes. And we'll talk to you next week. Bye.